Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. This week, we want to start a little bit different. This show is all about helping you have conversations with people from, quote unquote, the other side, or people who are considering voting the same way that we all do. But we want to make sure that you know that we're actually modeling that behavior in our lives, and we want to set a good example. So I signed up uh, as a Biden surrogate uh, in the last couple of weeks, and the first mission they gave me was to go on Fox News and counter the law and order message. So I did that this week, and I think that counts as talking to the other side. Well, Jason, I got a chance to see it, and uh, I, I want to go through this with you because there was this funny moment which we should probably play where I know when you're trying to set up a joke because I know you well enough now, and I was like, as I was watching this, it was almost like, uh, if you're watching a family member at like a gymnastics competition and you're like, oh, oh, like I just wanted to make sure you stuck it. Honestly, when I think about President Trump's campaign, uh, it reminds me of like when you watch a movie where there's a chase scene and at some point the chase scene goes through a restaurant and then the person being chased goes through the kitchen and then they're pulling down like every pot and pan behind them to create <laughs> chaos. I feel like that's President Trump's campaign and the rest of us, whether you're part of the Biden campaign or whether you're just like an American trying to raise kids or go to the grocery store and not be afraid of getting COVID are the people in that kitchen just trying to cook for the customers. Yeah, I. Uh, th there's two times. One, I got halfway through my analogy and I heard Dana laugh and I was like, okay, this is good. And then the other time was when I, I did my line about the IRA and Basque separatists. And he didn't mention Antifa thugs. So is that a missed uh, opportunity for Biden? Well, look, he also didn't mention, um, let's see, the IRA, Al-Qaeda, uh, Basque separatists. I mean, what is this ridiculous game the president's playing? But that's not, is that relevant? First of all, kudos to you for, uh, you know, an obscure reference for Americans, not for people around the world. But yeah. uh, Well, kudos. But then again, like, really, this podcast is about, you know, helping people have these conversations. Like, don't reference the Basque separatists and and if you're going to actually try and convince someone. I mean, that was, you know, probably not the best argument tactic. But, you know, the line, you know, you asked me to find something in this um, that we could say we could do better. Uh, and so for listeners, I'm not just giving Jason a hard time here. The only part of the interview that I wanted to rewind and say, all right, maybe, maybe we gave them something we didn't want to give them is... Uh, when she asked you about why the president, why uh, Vice President Biden didn't mention Antifa, um, and I think you said he was condemning all violence. Vice President Biden said 
all violence. Like he was like, it doesn't matter where you're coming from on this. None of that would be acceptable. He so I mean, if he started picking out individual things, then they would say, well, he didn't say all violence. I could see a very smart Republican to come back and say, well, like, isn't that what you say? The problem with all lives matter is, is that it's not specific enough. And I actually have thought about it from a substantive perspective. Like, is Biden wrong not to mention Antifa or is he doing it even deliberately? And I think if I were in your position, having thought through this question, maybe what I would say is, I'm not sure we have any reason to draw any implications from Biden not mentioning Antifa by name. I, I, as a commentator on here, I'm not sure who is in Antifa and whether they're responsible for this. I could say, based on the limited knowledge that I have, that they make me uncomfortable and that they their tactics are counterproductive and wrong and in some cases illegal and in, and in those cases they should be arrested. And I'm sure if you asked Biden that question, he would say the same thing, you know? Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I thought that afterwards, too, that it could have played into the hands of, of that argument, uh, unfortunately. But the other thing I thought was, and, and what I think would have been better to say, and also the actually very correct, which is, you know, President Trump seems very eager to legitimize Antifa and turn it into this organization. I, I don't know anyone in Antifa. I don't like I mean, is there like are there meetings? I have no idea like what <laughs> how it works, right? Um, but he wants it to be this thing that we can all be afraid of because it's this organized force, which I don't know that it is. And so I suppose really the the, the best answer and the and the right answer to that is probably what the Biden campaign has gone through in this exercise, which is do we want to be a second major voice? In fact, the other half of the two major voices in this campaign creating legitimacy for this thing, Antifa, would probably have been the better answer. One of the things that you did really well, and I think that everybody can take, is you stayed calm and you were cool and confident throughout the whole process. So it, it, you did not lose your sense of perspective or seem like you were unwound, uh, which I think is probably easy to do either on Fox News or with relatives. And so I think that's critical in this. Yeah, I think a big part of that, I appreciate that. I think a big part of that is remembering that if stuff is absurd, it's okay to find it a little absurd and make that noticeable. Like, if, if I'm going to sit there and make the argument that the premise of the question is is a little bit silly, then a natural thing to do would be to smile and find it a little bit silly. I, I didn't want to go too far and be like, this is all a joke. But, like, what Trump is doing is silly. And so I wanted to respond with a tone that's like, don't we all feel like this is a little bit silly? Yeah, totally. And I also liked that you are pushing them back onto what is the most important issue for the country and also the most advantageous ground for Democrats, which is the COVID response. So you repeatedly did that throughout the interview. And I thought that is important for all of us because the national discussion that's happening right now coming out of the Republican convention is what they want to talk about. Uh, whereas uh, the, the issues m most affecting people around the country you know, racial justice issues affect people in every city, but looting and rioting is not rampant in every city and every town. Uh, and so they want to make it seem that it is. But I think you did a really good job of coming back to COVID. It's, it's also, I think, important to remember that the, the nature of our cable news discussion is always a horse race discussion, right? Like all the, the premises of a lot of the questions that I'll get as a Biden surrogate is, 
don't you think that President Trump is making a good political move here? And don't you think Biden is not making one? Like, that's how they'll challenge you. And that has seeped into the way we all talk about policy in this country. Instead of it being, this is good for the country, this is bad for the country, we've all sort of gotten into this habit of having these horse race debates. And I find that one of the easiest things to do, both on TV and in person, is just to remember... Well, no, 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 that doesn't matter. Like, you can completely think that a decision that the vice president made is politically stupid, but why do we care if it's good for the country? Right, right. right. And so that's an easy ground to go back to because generally what we're doing is good for the country. Before we get to the news of the week, I want to make sure to remind everybody that you can interact directly with us and be part of the show. If you leave us a voicemail letting us know what you would like help countering, what arguments people are bringing up to you, uh, you can do that. 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. And there's a good chance that uh, we'll end up playing your voicemail on the show and then responding to it. All right, with that, let's get to the news of the week. What do you have for us this week, Robbie? Well, uh, so for the news of the week, we've already started on this news, but the president took a trip down to Kenosha as part of a broader effort to make himself look strong and effective uh, on criminal justice issues and law and order, which is a phrase we should come back to. He wants to make Biden look weak and look like a tool of the left. And I think there's a, there's a bit of an attempt here to make Biden look uh, John Kerry-esque and like flip-flopping or whatever, which I think Biden is handling well. In a roundtable discussion in, in Kenosha, Trump made some claims about how he has effectively clamped down on looting and rioting. Let's listen in. My administration coordinated with the state and local authorities to very, very swiftly deploy the National Guard, search federal law enforcement to Kenosha and stop the violence. And I strongly support the use of the National Guard in other cities. And the same thing would be happening if we did that. You'd have the same thing happen in Portland that would happen very quickly. It would all be over very, very quickly. And in a tweet Monday, he said, if I didn't insist, all caps, uh, on having the National Guard activate and go into Kenosha, Wisconsin, there would be no Kenosha right now. Given that this is a claim that Trump is trying to make about his effectiveness, and he's repeated it in a couple of different venues, but uh, just so you know, this is completely false, meaning the president didn't deploy the National Guard. If you know anything about how the National Guard works, that he he can't deploy the National Guard. Wisconsin Governor uh, Tony Evers, uh, not Trump, deployed the National Guard to Kenosha, and the governors of Arizona, Michigan, and Alabama also sent National Guard troops to Kenosha after Evers requested assistance. Trump also, in a roundtable the day before he went to Kenosha, talked about how he was also responsible for the relative calm that has happened in Minneapolis since some of the more heated moments there. The town is burned down. I mean, you look at Minneapolis, they should have acted much quicker. When we got the National Guard in there, it took literally a half an hour. You saw the scene. They formed, they walked, it was over. And they haven't had a problem of any consequence since. Before I kick it to you, Jason, the governor of Minnesota is who sent the National Guard, and he deployed them before Trump tweeted uh, a demand for him to do so. So just so people know, those are the facts. But once again, the facts don't always do the work. So Jason, how should we handle claims like this? Well, for me personally, it's, you know, I was a member of the National Guard. And so I know that for the president to use the National Guard, he has to federalize and mobilize the National Guard, which he has not done in any of these cases. I think actually what we should point out is that, you know, the president wants to send all this extra equipment to police. He wants to use federal law enforcement. And he also wants to use active duty military. But actually, the governors who have chosen to call out the, the guard, that, you know, we should be honest about the fact that that has been huge. It has been much more effective than local police. 
because look, it, it becomes less about police versus protesters. And the guard is made up of all sorts of people, many of whom agree with the protesters, which completely changes the tone on the street. I have friends in the Missouri Army National Guard who have been you know, used in St. Louis, used in Kansas City, who have told me that if they weren't out there you know, doing their job as a guardsman, that they would have been out there protesting and that they're able to bring a relative level of calm. So I don't think we should fall into the trap of saying, well, no, no, the guard doesn't have anything to do with it. No, we should make sure to say, yeah, actually, the guard has done a pretty good job in most of these cases. And it's a really good thing that the governors, you know, were calling them out instead of, you know, doing what the president wanted, which was militarizing the police more and bringing in federal law enforcement. Go back and look at the video in upstate New York where the, the older gentleman was assaulted. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I think that might have been Buffalo. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you go and it's hard to watch. So, you know, I put a disclaimer on it. But if you go back and you look at that. After the gentleman goes down, and it's an older fella, and he's clearly bleeding a lot, a couple of officers walk past him, and one of the officers says, keep going, keep going. And then right behind them are an element of guardsmen, and as soon as the first guardsman reaches him, they're down on the ground administering aid, which I think is a good example of they don't have this same sort of us versus them mentality. I'm not saying all the officers out there have this, but it's sort of baked into the situation, and it's not baked into the situation for them. We already went through when you were on Fox News uh, about how Trump is saying, why didn't Biden call out Antifa, et cetera. Uh, but uh, Biden had a pretty strong response on Monday. Let's listen to just a piece of that. I want to make it absolutely clear, something very clear about all of this. Rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. Setting fires is not protesting. None of this is protesting. It's lawlessness, plain and simple. So uh, we'll get to a little bit more of Biden's statement in a second. But I think uh, the reason why we're sharing this clip is, number one, we want to make sure you don't lose it because there are going to be a lot of claims about what Biden believes over the course of the next few weeks and months. And I think he, he made it very clear. Some people on the left might not even like what he said, but he has, I think, proved to be a fairly elusive target for Trump when it comes to these issues because he is not a far left candidate that Trump wants him to be. And Trump is straining and Trump's people are straining to try to make Biden something that he's not. And basically they're going through all this elaborate stuff. And then he's like, well, no, I'm, I don't believe that. I never have believed what you're saying, I believe. And I'll just reiterate it one more time. Jason, are we worried that there could be like a John Kerry effect here or something where they paint Biden as something that he's not? You know, they make Kerry, who is a war veteran, look like he was soft on national security. Like, is, is there a danger here that, that they could still succeed in painting him in a certain way? Absolutely. I mean, it's why it's so important that everybody challenge everybody who makes these assertions in their daily lives and that not just happen on TV. They have created such an incredibly effective echo chamber. There was an article this week about the way that the Democratic Party, and not meaning the party itself, but all of us have a tendency to take for granted the idea that our arguments are getting through when if you look at Facebook and if you just spend a little time on Facebook looking at right wing, you know, arguments, the, the way that they fly around the website, it's it is a very effective echo chamber, which means what they've done in the past to John Kerry, what they've done in the past to Hillary Clinton, people like that, they can now do in a much shorter amount of time. And so we have to be that much more vigilant and not take any argument that they make for granted. Yeah. And I think, you know, listeners could probably get a sense of this from last week when we talked to Adisu, but I take the, this sort of line of argument very seriously for a few reasons. Number one, because it takes us off of the COVID message. And so I think we just got to keep 
pounding that message because that is the the issue that exposes Trump for who he is and also is preventing our country from getting back on solid ground. But number two, it's because I think that the left, uh, as some, I heard somebody say this morning, is you know the far left is a target-rich environment. Uh, I think somebody said, and I, I think as somebody who works predominantly within left politics, there are some things said on the left that I personally don't believe. I don't think that they're bad people for saying them, and I and I hope people don't think I'm a bad person for disagreeing with them. But I think on this issue of cops, and I think on this issue of public safety, there were people back in June who were saying, in any way criticizing the protests, uh, makes you racist, uh, or at least makes you insensitive. And then there um, are a lot of people, people I care about, who talk about police, period, in a way that I understand where they're coming from because we have a ton of reform, but I view police as city employees, usually of democratic administrations. And I think there's a certain care that I would love to see taken to people who are largely middle-class people, a lot of people of color, especially in New York now, as the the, the police force starts to diversify in the younger ranks. And I, I think there has been a kind of a screwy debate at times on the left. And the, I see the right preying on that. And I, I see them sensing that as a vulnerability and so I do worry about it uh, and how that could be nationalized. Yeah, I think people need to understand that you don't have uh, a responsibility to agree with absolutely everything that is said by people on the same side of the aisle as you. And that doesn't make you a moderate. It doesn't make it just makes you a, a regular human person who has your own set of thoughts. I mean, you can believe that there is a desperate need for police reform and at the same time disagree with the statement all cops are bad. Because there are very few things I can think of. There are a few, but there are very few things I can think of where you could, you know, substitute the word cops for something else and get something that you agree with, right? I mean, all such and such sort of a person are bad. There's very few things. And I, look, I, I just think you, you nailed it right in the head. Like, there are a lot of people who go into police work for the right reasons. And uh, the idea that every single one of the hundreds of thousands of them in this country are bad is is not something that you are obligated to agree with. Yeah. And you know, what's so frustrating about this and and hopefully we'll we'll get daylight after November on this is that there's a really healthy discussion that should be happening in this country. Right. And you see a little bit of this happening in Minneapolis where you have, I think in some cases, uh representatives from communities of color saying, wait, 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 like before we dismantle the police force I want to take like what appears to be some vague uh, notions about what this could look like afterwards and clarify it more because the stakes are highest for us both ways. When police are too excessive, the stakes are highest for us. And when there is no police, the stakes are highest in our neighborhoods. And the debate that we should be having as a country is what is the right balance and how do we get that right in a way that protects the civil liberties and just safety uh, of people of color in particular when it comes to police violence, but also ensures that they have um, sports systems so that if anything happens in their neighborhood, that they have a basic city services from police and others that most of us take for granted in other neighborhoods. Yeah, I think it's just really plain to explain to people that, look, where we're coming from is not policing is bad. Where we're coming from is we're opposed to bad policing. Right, right. And I so and I think getting back to Biden, which I think was one of his best speeches I think he's given in this campaign, he said a couple of other things. He said, does anyone believe there will be less violence in America if Donald Trump is elected? And I think that's the question. 
I, I think like that is like when you're looking for Labor Day backyard party or whatever, point blank ask that question to people who are on the fence. Like the, the true believers are going to say whatever they believe, but most reasonable people would be like, yeah, that that is the important question. That's the equivalent of are you better off than you were four years ago Reagan question, in my opinion. Which sort of brings us to what Kellyanne Conway had to say, because it sort of proves the point, right? She went on Fox and Friends and she said the quiet part out loud. The more chaos and anarchy and vandalism and violence reigns, the better it is for the very clear choice on who's best on public safety and law and order. Look, if, if they're out there saying, and she's not the only person from Trump's campaign to say that the more of this that happens, the better it is for us politically, then it's not very difficult to connect that to there's going to be more of this with Trump. It's what he likes. And all you got to do is is look at him going to Kenosha and the way in which he did it, right? Because it's always about Trump. Rather than quell the chaos, he wants to stoke it. He wasn't invited. Like I said on Fox, he wasn't invited, but he went, knowing that it'll divert the resources away. And so also, you know, scheduling is policy. And, and he went to Kenosha to review damage. And that is a choice that he made, right? Whatever he goes to see, that's what the cameras are going to see. So that's what all of us are going to see. So what he wants us to see is the damage. He wants us to look at Kenosha and see something to fear. Now, this episode drops on Thursday, the same day that we just found out the Bidens are heading to Kenosha to hold a community meeting. And that's a big difference, right? Like he's going there to see the damage so that we see the damage and we're afraid of it. They are going there to see the community and to highlight them because what they want us to see when we look at Kenosha is ourselves. That's a big difference. You know, the other thing that the president said is Tuesday before he got on the plane to, to go to Kenosha, he said, you should compare, telling the media, you should compare the way my administration has handled this sort of situation to the way Ob the Obama administration did. And he specifically talked about Ferguson. And as far as the previous administration take a look at st louis take a look at ferguson take a look at what happened what they had was put what we're doing and put them to shame well, look i was in ferguson president obama he didn't show up and inflame the situation even though a lot of people on the ground a lot of people among the protest wanted him to be there and asked for him to but he said no that would be making it about me, and that would inflame the situation. Instead, he sent in a huge team from the Department of Justice to study what was happening on the ground in Ferguson. That led to a consent decree to implement the findings of a 102-page report, including police reforms, an overhaul of the Ferguson Municipal Code to bring more diversity into the city's leadership, and an end to the practice of what's called taxation by citation, which is funding the city by just putting all sorts of meaningless tickets and fines and ultimately arrest warrants on the mostly black citizens of the city. And that made a huge difference because as we sit here today, the, the city of Ferguson elected this year for the first time a black mayor. There's a woman named Ella Jones who is the mayor of the city of Ferguson, and a lot has changed in Ferguson. So I think we should highlight that thing that President Trump said and embrace the idea of comparing what these two administrations have done in this situation. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. Even with a balanced diet, it's difficult to cover all of your nutritional bases. That's where Athletic Greens will help. Their daily drink is like nutritional insurance for your body that's delivered straight to your door. 
Yeah, and I've been really excited, Jason, about this one for a while. I drink it every morning. It's the first thing I do every morning before I walk out the door, even before I drink coffee. I kept telling you, you're going to try this stuff and you're going to feel like Superman. And now you're a few weeks into using Athletic Greens, Jason. How do you feel? I mean, honestly, really, I love it. I'm not just saying that I was taking a multivitamin. I've taken a multivitamin for a long time. I no longer take that multivitamin because I, I drink Athletic Greens. It is the first thing I do every morning when I wake up as well. What I really love about this is that no matter what your kind of diet, keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, this supplement is going to help you. What makes it really special is that it's derived from whole food sources, so it just gives you an extra pep in your step. So uh, whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system, or address your gut health, now's the perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. So simply visit athleticgreens.com majority. That's athleticgreens.com majority to claim a special offer today and receive a free D3K2 wellness bundle with your first purchase. That's up to one year supply of vitamin D as added value when you try their delicious and comprehensive daily all-in-one drink. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more comprehensive nutritional bundle anywhere else. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority. It can be hard to find time to sit down and read or just figure out what you want to read first from that big list that you're keeping in your head. But luckily, Blinkist is here to solve that problem. Blinkist takes the key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down to just 15 minutes that you can either read or listen to. I like Blinkist because it allows me to get through a bunch of the books uh, that I've been meaning to get through, uh, and I don't know if I'm ever going to get around to reading the entire thing, but at least I can get the basics off of Blinkist. Yeah, Jason, I'm really excited because I'm off between now and the day after Labor Day, and I've got queued up like 20 books on Blinkist, uh, and I'm just going to walk around Manhattan listening to a bunch of books like about Hope or Sapiens, which you've talked about, or Becoming by Michelle Obama, or like I said, my favorite, Why We Sleep. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. And right now for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. So you go to Blinkist.com slash majority 54, and you could try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash majority 54 to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Majority54. We, of course, have a segment called Quarantine Corner. Jason, uh, what is the highlight or low light from your past week? Uh, I would say that the NBA is, is giving me life, right? Like before the players stepped up uh, after um, the Jacob Blake shooting and even before that, right? I mean, the games were so good and, and it was amazing what they had pulled off. And then the way they stepped up and they said, you know, like started with the Milwaukee Bucks saying, we're not going to play. The players were in the locker room saying, we're not coming out until we get the attorney general of Wisconsin on the phone. I thought that was cool as hell. And and then that, you know, went all the way through the rest of the NBA and ended up going through parts of, of MLB. And that made me feel inspired. And then they got on the phone with President Obama, some of the lead, some of the leaders among the players, and said, "How do we figure out this situation? How do we continue to use our platform?" And again, thanks Obama, he saved basketball for the country and saved the ability of these players to continue to to put this message uh, in a way that everybody sees it. 
like the playoffs have been incredible. What the, what the NBA has figured out how to do in a pandemic and still pushing social justice, I just think it's really inspiring and frankly also really entertaining uh, on the on the sports side. Yeah, yeah, amen to that. And we're gonna keep an eye on two weeks from now when the NFL goes back. I I'm nervous about that given the fact that they aren't in a bubble. Uh, and especially mm-hmm. this is the this is the year the Bills will win the Super Bowl if they allow us to get that far. Can I make an NFL prediction? I want to make it now so that it's a still counts as a prediction later yeah go for it uh i can predict two things that will happen as far as the nfl and covid there will be a week one and there will be a super bowl i have no idea what happens in between but i know the amount of ad revenue involved the nfl will figure out how to start and the nfl will figure out how to have a super bowl and i have no idea whether we play any games in between Uh, i was joking to a friend the other day that um the bills play the jets opening weekend which is a game we should win it could be the first undefeated season we've ever had because they could <laughs> shut things down after that. We're taping this on September 2nd, which is the day that New York City fitness locations indoors open back up. And so I just want to give a shout out to what is a resilient community in New York that I care a lot about, small business owners in particular, uh, the small business owners who run fitness studios, but all small business owners who are just struggling. And so many businesses have gone down during this pandemic, like if you walk around my neighborhood, there's just one place after another with a notice in front of it, apologizing to customers that they won't ever be reopening again. And so I just want to give some encouragement to people who've been really innovative, you know, people putting rooftop gyms together, outdoor park gyms together. Uh, It really shows the character of the city and just shout out those folks who are getting back on their feet this week and, and trying to keep their businesses open. So Good luck uh, as we get everything back moving here. In this week of misinformation, uh, we just didn't get a chance to talk about Trump's speech at the convention. So we want to at least talk about it a little bit. He spoke for 70 minutes. I'm sure most people listening to this did not watch the whole thing, probably caught clips of it. I thought like the best jokes out there were comparing him to Castro, who was famous for giving hours and hours long speeches. CNN was fact-checking in real time and found at least 20 false or misleading claims in the speech, uh, which would amount to one false claim about every three minutes, which actually is better than I would have expected. And we can't obviously go through all of them, but given the fact that we want to empower you and encourage you to, to bring everything back to healthcare and COVID, we wanted to talk specifically about some of the claims about healthcare. We will always and very strongly protect patients with pre-existing conditions, and that is a pledge from the entire Republican Party. Thank you, Kevin. We will end surprise medical billing, require price transparency, and further reduce the cost of prescription drugs and health insurance premiums. They're coming way down. Here are the facts. Drug prices increased during Trump. They didn't decrease. And the administration has repeatedly tried to weaken protections for pre-existing conditions, including going to court to try to strike down Obamacare's ban on pre-existing conditions. So I think this lie will work if it isn't challenged. And and that's the whole play here. But fortunately, we have the advantage because when folks think about healthcare, they think about us. And that's partly due to the fact that the GOP spent a billion dollars hitting us over the head for wanting to give more people healthcare. And that was between 2010 and 2016. So it's really easy to just remind people like, hey, they were really mad at us, remember, for wanting to give more people healthcare. And on this one, I just start by reminding people that the Trump administration is still suing to try to end the protections on pre-existing conditions. Trump's had four years to do this. He hasn't done it. So why would he do it in a second term? 
But then finally, you got to personalize it. I talk about your own pre-existing conditions. I talk about that of your kids. Everybody has them. And I would just make it really clear that President Trump has you afraid. And if none of that works, just take the simplest approach, which is compare the two major bills from the past decade on healthcare, Obamacare and Trump care. Obamacare covered pre-existing conditions. Trump care was an unsuccessful attempt to repeal that coverage, period. And uh, Jason, Trump also boasted about his administration's testing system. We developed from scratch the largest and most advanced testing system anywhere in the world. America has tested more than every country in Europe put together and more than every nation in the Western Hemisphere combined. Think of that. All right. I think my quick advice here is just to point to your experience where you live. So I would just ask somebody, was it easy to get tests throughout COVID where you live in? Was it easy to get back timely results? Because, you know, a lot of people, and we had this issue in New York for a period of time, we couldn't get results back for like another week or two, which completely invalidates the whole reason of doing the test because then you, enough time has elapsed where you could get COVID in between getting your results. So I would just do that instead of, you know, sending somebody a Vox article or whatever about how our testing compares to South Korea. What do you think, Jason? Yeah. The only thing I would add is remind people that the president's position is that we should be testing less, right? Like, I mean, his his second term priority might be no testing for no matter what he says. But yeah, I completely agree. It, it, this is a really simple one where you ask an open-ended question, which is how many people do you know personally who have even had a test? I thought about that when I was thinking about this uh, line of argument by him. And for me, that number is nine. And two of those people got it because they needed it for work that they do in media. Three got tested after they had already gotten sick. And then the rest of the people that I know who got tested got tested because they were exposed to one of those sick people that I mentioned. I know a lot more than nine people. And nine is probably on the high end for an answer to the question of how many people do you know personally who have been tested? By the way, I'm counting myself in that. I, so really, I know eight. All right, let's give out a Kellyanne Conway Alternative Facts Award. Uh, who can we recognize this week? Well, I want to recognize uh, Representative Steve Scalise. You know, he did something so blatant and disgusting. Steve Scalise took a video where Adi Barkan, who's uh, an activist, somebody I went to law school with, and I think you know him pretty well, Jason, too, uh, who is struggling mightily with ALS and has to use um, voice assistance. And uh, Adi was asking Biden a series of questions, including about defunding the police. And Steve Scalise, his office doctored the video to to change a question. Uh, now, it didn't wholly change the question, but they, they definitely changed the context by adding a soundbite about police to a question about funding to make it sound like Biden was answering a slightly different question than he was answering. So basically they took a person who has to use voice assistive technology and manipulated the audio to make it sound like he was asking a question that he wasn't asking. And, and Barkhan asked Scalise uh, to take it down. And then Scalise's office took it down in a kind of a petulant statement. It was like, okay, sure, I'll take it down, but I still didn't do anything wrong. Jason, how do we treat situations like this? I thought this was really scary because um, I, I don't know Audie as well as you do, but uh, it bothered me personally because I because I know him. I mean, listeners to the podcast for a long time will remember that we actually did an episode uh, where, we, where we interviewed him. So there's probably a lot of people listening to this who feel like they know him a bit too. I can't understand how Steve Scalise wasn't mortified when he found out that his office had... Because I'm going to assume that he wasn't in there working with the editing equipment or I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he didn't quarterback the idea of, of editing it this way. I just don't understand how he wasn't 
spurred to issue like a really genuine, I'm embarrassed by this and I'm really sorry, uh, apology. And I, I'm worried about it and frightened by it because I don't know what we're going to do about manipulated video and manipulated audio because it's, it's getting the quality of it, you know, in terms of making it believable is, is getting better and better all the time. And it's going to be a part of the rest of this campaign. I mean, we've seen the Trump side do it three or four times in the last week at the highest levels. And, you know, it, it, it drives the narrative. I mean, that's the thing. It's easy for us to take it for granted because we see the news reports about it that say, oh, the, you know, Twitter said this was a manipulated video. But the thing is, is once that happens, the horse has left the barn. It's driving the narrative and it and people won't directly bring it up to you. I saw this video that said X. It'll just get into their opinions and, and it'll, they'll internalize it. And so what I'm wondering is, does it just require us to counter every single social media post we possibly can as, as citizens? I don't know. I almost think that's the move, especially in an environment where we can't knock doors, is that if we could just wear out the virulent strains, like, you know, there's there's a certain segment uh, for a lot of our listeners, you know, like if you're in Missouri or you're in Staten Island, there's like a certain segment of your friendship base and family base who are not going to change their minds, but they're in, they're persuading other people through their social media posts. And so part of your job is to continue to wear them down every time they post something to jump on those posts and be like, no, that's not true. Not only is it not true, but here's a non-factual way to think about this. Like, let me try to change the way you think about this issue altogether. And on the sort of non-factual side of things, I just continue to come back to how we're setting an example for our children. And one thing that really worries me is that the difference between our politics and our society is getting thinner and thinner and thinner at a time when our politics is more disgusting than it's ever been before. And when you have somebody like Trump who's mocked people with disabilities, mocked people of color, mocked people who are different than them, denigrated women, uh, and then you have people in the rank and file of the GOP who are following close behind them and doing stuff like this, they're emulating him. And then all their supporters are emulating those leaders as well. Uh, and I don't know if it was true if people emulated Harry Truman back in the day. I imagine there was probably more distance between people and the presidents, but the presidents were definitely more dignified. But it certainly seems that there's a more of a cultural aspect to the presidency right now with his supporters than we've ever seen before. And that's dangerous for society. I mean, I can tell you coming from Kansas City, people here definitely emulated. I mean, everything here is named after him, right? And so- and, Oh, and Truman, I think, you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's always going to be, at a minimum, parts of the country where people emulate the president. But you're absolutely right. Like It, it is a de facto cultural leadership position. And it goes back to one of the biggest things about leadership. And, and this makes me think about the manipulated video, manipulated audio, but also just manipulated reality, right? The idea that, oh, no, we're doing lots of testing. Oh, no. You know, all these claims that they make, it is the fact that one of the most important parts of leadership is the ability to deliver bad news. It is the greatest responsibility of leadership. And I've said this before on the podcast. And so much of what President Trump does comes from his insecurity about delivering bad news. So he just pretends the news isn't bad. And that's why he's such a poor leader. But you're right. It's something that people try to emulate. So they don't have, in this case, Vice President Biden saying, defund the police. I don't remember what it was. They don't have audio of him doing it. So they just created it, right? And they're like, it's literally, I mean, it's the perfect alternative facts award because they, they created it an alternative reality. And I, it really worries me. And I think that the analogy here is, 
why do you have a responsibility to reply to posts where people say this and try and point out the, the facts for others watching? For the same reason that if you're standing around the water cooler in your office and somebody tells a racist joke, but it's not aimed at your ethnicity or your race, you still have a responsibility to say, you know, I don't think we should say that kind of thing. I think it's the same, the same situation. Amen to that. We have a segment we call Grab an Oar. Uh, and I'll go first with just a reminder to folks. I had mentioned on a few podcasts back that there's this exercise called the Murph, which is named after a, a service member who was killed in action uh, named Michael P. Murphy. It's a workout that you could do in its full form, which is online if you just Google the Murph workout, or you could do it in a modified form, and there's tons of ways to modify it. But it's a it's a cool workout you could do without any equipment except for somewhere to do pull-ups or some modified version of pull-ups. And so we had talked about doing it during Labor Day weekend. And so um, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you want to give it a try, tag us on Instagram uh, while you're doing it. You could do it at any point in the weekend. I think I'm going to do mine on Saturday. If you tag Murph Challenge, it brings awareness to uh, some important causes. And there's a foundation behind it if you want to take a look at that as well, where money can go to a good cause if you uh, want to donate while doing it. Uh, I'm going to do it as well uh, this weekend again. And uh, despite the fact that I'm... I'm having some uh, tendonitis in my elbow, but you know what? I'm going to figure it out because uh, if you read Michael P. Murphy's story, you're going to say whatever aches and pains you have, like they're not a big deal. For my side of Grabinor, uh, this week I am one of a small group of social media quote unquote influencers, uh, which is a weird way to self-identify yourself, but here we are, uh, leading a campaign to recruit poll workers. And I know we've talked about this a lot on, on the pod, uh, but with COVID-19, there's a huge poll worker shortage, and that could lead to polling places being closed. So we are asking people to become a poll hero. So it's hashtag poll hero. We've already had thousands of new signups uh, just from doing this this week uh, all across the country. So I'd ask you to be one of them. We'll post the link in the show notes, uh, but you can also just type in powerthepolls.org slash hero, or you can go to, to my Twitter feed and the links are all through my timeline. All right, as always, thanks for listening. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jason Kander on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. We want to hear from you, so I'm going to plug that voicemail number again. It's 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kimmet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. You may want to say Minneapolis again. Oh, really? You Where did I say? called it Minneapolis. And I think you may want to... Minneapolis. Okay, you that's... just may want to have that so Grace can cut that back in. I, just... You want to know something crazy? I probably have said Minneapolis my entire life. From the way you said it, I knew that. I was like, that's definitely how he says it. But people will will make fun of it so minneapolis 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 <laughs> oh shit you wrote it as minneapolis that's oh, there funny you go. okay let me do this in the same round you guys are making me laugh don't look at me this is so silly i have never said the city the proper way in my entire life in the same round table in kenosha the president took credit for the relative calm in minneapolis <sighs> hi listeners it's robbie with a question for you what if instead of being on the brink of disaster we're on the cusp of a better world. For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas 
dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.